Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. I've appreciated all the feedback I've been getting as of recent. Thanks for doing that, taking the time. Appreciate all the emails. And I also want to reaffirm something. In the last podcast you listened to, I talked about a Habitat Day. That's going to be in July of 2024. And all specifics on my website, I've already gotten a bunch of inquiries on that. I appreciate people wanting to participate that and learn. I'll have more information on that to come. There'll be a subsequent benefit. We'll have a, a few things going on in that, some some key people, speakers, et cetera. It'll be a, a pretty good time. But again, that's that's for next year. So just keep that in the back of your mind. The other piece of it is continue to reach out to me. I appreciate the feedback. Any topics that you want to hear, specifically or questions that you have, we'll start addressing those. I want to be more interactive with the audience. I think it's important that you know that type of engagement continues to occur. I had a, somebody message me today asking for alternative options for water holes, what material to use instead of mill paper. They wanted to use some other type of or something, you know, maybe a water tub for that example. And I suggest to go to your local pool store, and a lot of times they, uh, you know, they do rehab on pools. They'll have pool liners, and that material is fantastic. A lot of times they'll give it away to you. It'll be in a dumpster, so that's a great option if somebody wants to use it as a liner system. Now, there's little tidbits and tricks like that that you know I want to share with everyone, so you you kind of get the leg up on other people, and, and you know that's an economical resource for you. All right, so uh, let me get into the topic. I got Eric Lance back here. If you remember, we had a Long discussion on a bunch of different topics. We, we did talk about waterfall and deer last go around. Uh, he's from the Hunt Science Podcast. Smart guy, biologist, you know, happy to have him back. Eric, hey, man, you on? Yeah, man, I'm here. How you doing? Good, good. So I think the topic today, and we're getting kind of, you know, I think people are starting to feel, you know, the the pressure of hunting season. I know that Rocky Burris, who's on the show, was on uh, last time, and we talked about he's got a hunt coming up here in August. They have a velvet hunt in Tennessee. And so, you know, I think some people are getting getting the bug or the prep. I myself, you know, I'm kind of in that boat. I don't know where you're at. So kind of, you know, where's your mind at for hunting season? You're starting to prepare? Yeah, yes and no, to be honest. I mean, this is my busy time of year for work with with consulting and you know, with utility clients and private land clients and, and all that other stuff. So my stuff is usually what's last on the back burner. Uh, but I'm definitely thinking about it. You know, my stands are all still up. I leave them up all year round. Um, you know, the cameras are all in place. I haven't really put any of the cards or anything like that in for the past couple months. Um, you know, kind of wait until the end of August is when I normally do my annual camera survey. Um, so that'll be gearing up. That's usually the first thing that I start dealing with. 
Um, but then after that, you know, it's just starting to go out there and, and scout and looking for sign, you know, stuff like that. I spend so much time in my woods already as it is. I mean, I, I've been hunting there for, oh man, I can't even remember how many, how many years, but I mean, I can pretty much tell where the deer, I, I know where they're betting. I know when they're going to start coming out. I mean, it's just, I've patterned them for so many years that, you know, I'm kind of fortunate in that aspect, but you know, it's still fun going out there, cutting trails you know, getting the trails prepped with the leaf blower and, and things like that to where we're not going to impact it too much for access here in the, here in the fall. So, yeah. And I think it's a great time to continue to, you know, do your preparation work. You know, you just mentioned trails, you know, when, and any client that I have, you know, I suggest, Hey, this is a time to make sure that the trail systems, you know, for your access or for your deer are, are prepped correctly. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit lighter work than going into cutting timber, uh, generally speaking, uh, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's a good opportunity to kind of get a sweat on and get a little work. And by the way, I'm also going to say, don't, don't stay off your property. I mean, continue to put, apply pressure, um, you know, use it as a resource and, and have an opportunity on your landscape to assess what's going on. One of the worst things we can do is not spend time on our land. I mean, I'm constantly on yeah. my property and deer running around me the whole time. I, I don't care. I'm there to work. I'm there to benefit them. So it, it's the same thing with me too. You know, I've got, I've got pointers. I've actually got four dogs. I've got two German short hair pointers and I've got two Australian shepherds. So I've got four really high strung dogs and need a lot of exercise. And it's, you know, I'm routinely out of my, out of my woods. You know, I've got different, you know, habitat dynamics throughout my property. Um, you know, forested ag, you know, early successional, you know, those kind of things. And, you know, I've got, you know, trails cut in and, and that's probably, that's probably honestly one of the things I'm most active with is, is manicuring and making sure my access and my trails are good. Um, you know, making sure my stand, you know, the limbs are good and I'll get up in the stand and, you know, stand up and just, you know, look around and make sure if I got to trim anything or, or whatever it is. I mean, honestly, that and my trail cameras, I mean, that's really the big prep that I do going into the fall. So, yeah, yeah, no, and I'm in the same boat. I actually just roller crimped. So for those that don't know, um, I, I kind of have a, maybe a little bit less conventional system. I have a crimping tool that I built for the back of my tractor and I crimp, and this is a, you know, a homemade tool. It's, it's a little more involved than just homemade, but, you know, welded up a pretty significant tool to crimp my fields. And I just finished my first crimping cycle. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'm doing preparation. So I get another 30 days to my next planting. I've got all my seed in, I'm ready to go. I'm going to terminate that crop slightly different. I'm actually going to mow that crop. So, you know, a lot of times it's just preparation, timing, readiness, all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of screwing around with equipment right now. And actually, I want to give a shout out, Eric. This yeah. is unrelated. I was on a job recently cutting, and a gentleman who's been on this podcast, Mark Cobb, I'm going to call him out. I, I was in a pinch. I had a chainsaw issue, and I'm in New Hampshire cutting timber. And I called him, and he gave me the parts. I went down to the local steel dealer. I mean, just over the phone, just great. It's nice to be able to have people that you work with that are on the ball, can, you know, give you equipment advice right there and there, you know. And so I, I think for a lot of people, it's staying up on your equipment, having the right equipment. And, uh, you know, that maintenance side of either your property or your equipment is huge this time of year. And, and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running chainsaws a lot and uh, I, I've got to be on top of my equipment. So you know, just sidebar, but I want to give a shout out for him. He's just, yeah. just a hey. great guy. Great guy. Yeah, this is the time of year to start looking at that stuff too. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. So, you know, the, the point there is just being close to somebody that has expert knowledge. And, uh, you know, that's that's either the same with our consulting side of the business, you know, or having, you know, the right folks uh, on the equipment side. So it's kind of important, whether it's a, your ATVs, your tractors, what have you, it's th those resources are wor worth their weight for sure. 
Yep, for sure. All right, so we want to get into the topic and um, want to get a little bit more involved here. Maybe we're going to focus on deer this go around. And we're going to talk about studies and studies related to GPS collaring. And um, this is an area where I've taken some of the data and tried to apply it and use it as, you know, kind of, I want to say kind of a resource for me, you know, how I cut locations where I think deer are going to be just based on some of this data. But I know that you have been, you know, looking at some GPS collar data over the years and trying to apply it to your hunting scenario. So I want to kind of get into your maybe understanding of how they do GPS studies and, you know, what are some practical, you know, things or takeaways that we can get from that data that's out there uh, on, on the streets right now? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I myself have never, I've been a part of, you know, kind of helping um, the, the tagging and things like that for the deer um, with the actual studies. But as far as the actual research itself, you know, I, I haven't really done any myself, but I've read a bunch of it. I mean, I think everybody who's in the hunting world, I think this is a topic, you know, me and you were discussing, um, you know, a topic and you brought this up. I'm like, this is a topic that I think everyone is, is interested in because of the information that you can gain from it. You know, so, yeah, I mean, as far as it goes, I mean, how, where do you want to start off? You want to start off with kind of how it's done or, or yeah, how do you want to I, I, go? I do, and, and I know that they look at it in, on a yearly basis. Sometimes they look at it in portions of the year. Um, yeah. I've, I've been involved in some drone stuff, so I have a little bit of experience on just the aerial kind of imagery yeah. and kind of looking at that data, too. So maybe we can talk about both of them. Yeah, I mean, the, drone, the drones have definitely modernized, you know, if you will. I mean, not the GPS is outdated by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, especially thermal drone imagery and things that are really changing the way that we look at, you know, deer densities and, you know, these urban forested metro parks and things like that where I am. You know, the, the thermal drones are a really good way of doing that rather than the old, you know, spotlight you know, point count type of thing, throwing a thermal drone up with the resolution these cameras have are really kind of changing the game as far as that goes. Um, you know, when you talk about GPS studies, the telemetry studies, there's there's a few different ways that they do it. Um, you know, they have the, I think what most people are familiar with are the radio callers, right? Or the, the, the GPS callers, there's radio callers and there's GPS callers. The radio callers are obviously for the radio telemetry. You know, those callers are going to emit, you know, um, unique radio frequencies and devices are going to be in hand of the researchers and it'll kind of, you know, help you identify, you know, where the deer are, uh, in that aspect. GPS callers, you know, are obviously, you know, working a little bit differently and they're using the GPS satellites to where, you know, those data points, those, those, GPS callers are emitting certain frequency uh, signals um, and relaying location uh, coordinates at certain intervals. So it just depends on on how the system is set up. You know, is it something that's, you know, marked every half hour, every hour, you know, whatever. I forget exactly what all the, the durations are, but there's a time interval associated with it. And then, you know, those GPSs, you know, are, are monitored from desktops and with certain software, and, and you can plan and, and look out where the deer have actually uh, moved, you know, throughout the range and throughout their habitat, and then start looking at and comparing data for different times of the year you know you mentioned different times of the year you know how is an individual buck moving you know throughout the spring versus the fall versus the summer you know know, we obviously look at bachelor groups you know what's the timing in which they go into these bachelor groups and and all those different types of things have been researched i mean there's anybody listening to this that wants to get more information i mean you can just google go to google scholar and just type in you know deer telemetry study and you're going to find studies you know from dr carl miller and other you know big researchers in the deer world um 
uh, for just looking at uh, almost anything you can think of. Because you can imagine, you know, once the GPS caller technology became, you know, I'm going to say more affordable, they're still highly expensive. And that's one of the things on why a lot of studies you don't see, you know, massive, you know, amounts of deer at the uh, at the uh, uh, university level, like per university. Now you'll get universities that will team up together. So maybe one university is looking at 30 deer, another one's looking at 15, another one's looking at 30, and you start adding four or five different universities up. Well, now your sample size is a lot bigger. So you know the collars are still really expensive. So the 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 net collars, the GPS collars, are one way that they do it. Another thing that they do is the intervaginal. Um, you know, transmitters as well, you know, and people are like, what the heck are you doing with those? Well, you know, when we do with those, we're looking at, you know, population dynamics, we're looking at fawn recruitment, right? So, you know, these, these uh, intervaginal transmitters are put in, they're meant to read at a certain temperature. And once you tend, once they sense the massive temperature switch, as they have a fawn, that, that transmitter gets pushed out, the massive temperature switch, you know, triggers the, the GPS signal to go off and a bunch of grad students basically go running out there and, and collect biological data on that fawn. Um, or they're doing a crime scene analysis to see what the predation, you know, was happening, you know, there as well. Was it a bobcat? Was it a you know coyote or whatever? You know, so if they find a carcass, or they find a live fawn, you know, they can get some type of data, you know, from that right there. Yeah, and I think that's all good. And having that variation, this is funny. This brings up a totally different topic. I had a biologist out here at my place. He was uh, studying squirrels, and he was doing telemetry studies on squirrels. <laughs> and uh, one of the squirrels got picked up by a hawk or some you know some bird and uh, was dropped off. And actually, my neighbor's farm down the road, and uh, he came by to ask me permission. Actually, we had a mutual friend. And uh, we got to be buddies, and he's like, hey, you want to go on a squirrel hunt? And so he had been trapping squirrels on my property and and, uh, telling me, you know, one of the issues, at least he was experiencing, is he was wondering why all the black squirrels were in one area and and the grays and and, uh, red squirrels were in a different area. And kind of kind of understanding the the population dynamics aspect of it. Yeah, and it's it's just really, really interesting you know, the yeah. re, you know, he was doing a reproductive study as well. So it's just, it just was really kind of interesting stuff to, to hear yeah. him talk about. And when you go to these, like I, I was just at the um, Southeast deer uh, study group, you know, this year, a couple months ago, and, and at, there was a, a telemetry booth there with all the different size callers and stuff. And there's companies out there that make really, so I mean, I mean, we use it for, like you said, squirrels, we use it for waterfowl, we use them for, you know, the, these things are, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but you know, here we are on the 19th and, and shark week's coming up this week. I mean, that's a big thing in my house. You know, people <laughs> that watch, I mean, the, the telemetry stuff is done, you know, with everything. So, you know, it just makes sense that obviously the deer nerds that are out there like us and, and the researchers that are like us as well, I mean, they're going to incorporate those technologies as best they can. So, you know, it's been done to exhaustion, you know, and, and there's just a lot of different topics that go on, a lot of different studies and, and people interested, man, I mean, you can literally – that there's no there's no end uh, to the amount of information you can get. I mean, I was doing a lit review today through the university that I teach at because we get access to all the journals. I mean, it's just it's just pages and pages. Yeah, and pages yeah. Of telemetry, you know, yeah, it's just yeah. like, oh my lord. And it's yeah. hard it's hard to have a real takeaway from that because you know I, I remember a study that I had read probably I don't know eight nine years ago. I think it was a Bronson Strickland study, and yeah, probably Har- Harper was involved in that. 
and they, and they were starting all the factors right this is this is at the time where they were trying to disprove the moon phase all the charlie alzheimer you know activity discussions that that had you know once kind of ensued for years he, he's a local new yorker and you know he's he's now passed but you know, those type of discussions kind of trigger this whole importance of understanding kind of their movements. And, you know, the breeding phase in a lot of people's mind is is really kind of one of the more, you know, critical times to be hunting. Now, I'll argue yes or no, you know, but the range of movement is really kind of important in that. And, you know, I always, and I've said this multiple times in this podcast is, you know, it's important to understand the deer social interaction and the range of movement. And my goal with my clients is to shrink that. And there's two primary factors that go into that, that the studies have kind of supported. One is hunting pressure is paramount. Uh, the more hunting pressure that you apply to your property, uh, likely, depending on you know your layout, et cetera, uh, there's a higher likelihood that deer are going to disperse because of that. Um, they're not going to move as much. They may not be on your property as frequently, and they may utilize other areas uh, more often. The other piece of this is recognizing that that habitat is meaningful in that equation. And, you know, having not just dense habitat, but remote dense habitat uh, could be ideal. And that, that's maybe, you know, some of these areas that we consider to be, uh, I guess, higher stem densities. And, you know, certain species or certain types would have good food value. The combination thereof could be quite beneficial. So, I mean, those are two things over the years that I've said, okay, I'll take that basic bits of information and apply it. But they've studied so many different things, home range movement studies, individualistic behaviors of deer, you know, all those things that go into kind of their, their general movements and distances. And a lot of people focus solely on distance. And, you know, it is critical from a hunting aspect, but I kind of want to get some of the takeaways and things that you've maybe gained over the years and maybe how you've applied it to your own personal property, your clients, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you hit it. So, I mean, kind of keeping with the GPS, you know, telemetry, I mean, what do you basically get from that information, right? Well, you get the movement patterns, you get the habitat use and selection, you're going to get, you know, obviously the population dynamic aspect that we talked about uh, briefly with the fawns, um, you know, and behavioral, you know, like I said, I mentioned briefly, you know, when are, you know, individual bucks moving into and transitioning into, you know, bachelor groups? Is it the same in the Midwest? Is it in the Southern latitudes? You know, what is it, right? So all these things have been studied, you know, crazy so here i am in the midwest and you know i'm used to obviously i'm in big ag country you know where i am and, yep. and where i live here in ohio is a bunch of ag so you know when you look at the broad scale i i personally don't spend a whole lot of time looking at the ranges or the home ranges right i mean you look at some studies and you're going to see you know 350 acres 400 acres you know whatever it is but for me you know the average parcel size that i have here in northeast ohio that i'm hunting or that i have access to and that most people do and i'm i'm guessing here but it's probably 20 to 30 acres you know i would imagine so you know you are not anywhere near you know, a deer's home range as far as the properties that we hunt. So for me, it doesn't really spend a whole lot of time. It make a whole lot of sense, excuse me, to spend a whole lot of time looking at the home range, right? Because the deer that I see now, they may be staying on my property and that's where the habitat comes in. You know, I know you're a big habitat guy. You've mentioned it obviously. Um, and everyone listening to this is a big habitat guy. And that's where, you know, on my podcast we talk about even too is, you know, you, your job as a manager and, and whether you're looking at these studies and how to incorporate it is to make your property as habitable and as attractive as possible. 
right? It's, I want to have, especially here in Ohio, I use, I really don't have a good name for it, but I kind of call what called like the turnpike model, right? I spend a lot of time driving on turnpike and it's nothing but straight road, concrete median wall. And then every, you know, 20, 30 miles, there's a rest stop, right? And that rest stop as humans, it has what we, what I need, you know, for my daily activities. I need gas. I need, if I need to get a drink or the bathroom, whatever it is. And it's like, you need to think about that with the deer that are utilizing your property, you know, compare that with aerial footage of what your neighbors look like, right? What does your property look like? Do you have good habitat or are your deer just cruising through your property because there's nothing there, but that concrete jungle and that median wall. Now, of course that's an analogy, but are your are the deer walking through your, you know, um, you know, closed canopy system, you know, early or uh, secondary growth, you can see 300 yards through it. You don't have any vegetative, you know, densities or diversity throughout anywhere of the property, you know, it's just standing agriculture. So it's like, you really don't have a whole lot of resources there. It's like, well, Eric, I only see them, you know, out at night. Yeah, man, because you've got a bean field that's out in the middle of nowhere with no cover. They're utilizing the cover of darkness, right? In most cases. So, you know, you start looking at these things and comparing it to what you see with, you know, some of these telemetry studies, it's like, okay, well, you start noticing, you know, higher prevalences of, of, you know, does and, and things bedding within close proximity, um, you know, to food sources, right? So you can start triggering those ideas in your head as you're walking your property to say, hey, here I is, I have a really good earth successional area here. My earth successional vegetation is is high and valuable cover and my cover equals food. Well, if you got a high degree of that, guess what? Because of what we know from, from deer movement and dispersals, you know, you, you probably have got some bedding areas there. And that's where the drones come in. Throw the drones up. I don't want to go trenching through there. And, and more often than not, you will find some bed areas in those. Um, and you can start marking those with a drone, take note where they are, and start setting up, you know, a plan of action. Yeah, and I think this is an investment thing for folks. And you can buy thermal drones. They may not have the resolution, but, you know, you could buy thermal drones relatively cheap, under a couple couple grand, and utilize those as a resource. And, and some states don't allow those during hunt season, so, you know, you have to be selective. Um, but you could use those to kind of look at your numbers, your population, you know, densities, et cetera. And then beyond that, you know, I start to think about some of the basic stuff. And one of the things that I've kind of clued in in some of these studies, and, and I'm not bashing any agencies or what have you, because they do the studies, they take, it, they take a lot of peer review analysis, and, and they kind of dig deep. But NDA had published something a few years back, kind of dissuading the fact that, yes, deer are crepuscular, and yes, they move, you know, during the morning and evening periods, you know, paramount, right? That's that's generally speaking, you know, when they move the most. However, 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 in northern latitudes where I live and you live, weather indices or weather indicators are huge factors, period. Now, those there have been studies that said those are just as important in the consideration of movement, depending on the cycle of weather. They've just, you know, disputed that point and said, no, no, this trumps that. I think in the broad scale, there's no question in my mind that they're correct. But in intervals, meaning during certain times of the year, particularly in northern latitudes, snow depth, temperature, you know, those type of things play major parts in their movement patterns. And and so I, I think, you know, we hear you know, people trying to take anecdotal kind of observational information and apply it. However, studies have proven my point as well. So yeah. I, want, I, want, I want people to think, you know, seasonally, and then I want to think of the factors, like you brought up the habitat, that all kind of 
impact and then the pressure, obviously. So those are all factors kind of in this equation. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and there's things that we don't, that or excuse me, telemetry or GPS studies can't tell us, right? You know, you look at these broad, you know, broad data sets and then from broad data sets, we, we make broad, you know, research, you know, uh, hypotheses and those are the things that we're testing. Um, but when you start looking at the GPS studies, I mean, what they don't tell us are the, the individual deer behavior, right? I mean, what the what are the individual what are the what are the eight or ten individual does on your property, along with the however many bucks? Like, what are they doing, right? I mean, the broad spectrum data is, is only you know as good as it is, you know, and that's why getting out there and get like you said, you know, reading data reading these studies and saying, okay, this is what the study says, but you talk about weather, of course, weather influences deer movement, right? So it's okay. I've noticed that, you know, again, trail, you, you start combining things, obviously, you know, the average, you know, obviously hunters aren't out there, you know, spending thousands of dollars on radio collaring, you know, a, you, you can't do it. You got special permits to do it. Um, you know, but you can read the data, make inferences, but you start doing observation surveys on your property. Hey, I'm gonna go sit in a stand. I'm gonna go sit in the blind. I'm yeah. gonna throw a drone up. Yeah. Right? I, it's gonna it's gonna rain. You know, the pressure outside is this. You know, studies say that they're gonna move at you know this certain pressure, this wind. Hey, I'm gonna throw a drone up and see if I see anything. See if I see any deer out there. You know, rather than me going trenching through there and spooking them, let me go out there and run that drone in the fields and see where they're moving. Right? Type of thing. So individual behavior. Right? The fine scale habitat. Um, you start looking at, you know, precisely what are they using? All these things are indicators of what the deer on your property are doing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's just, it's just paramount to understand. I mean, bring up the NDA, um, you know, I think there, I, I made some notes here. I can't remember what it was. Um, I didn't make a ton of notes on here, but I know the NDA at the time, I think it was published. They were the QDMA. So if anyone was looking at this, um, you know, you start looking at, uh, I think Clint McCoy was one of the researchers, um, that did this paper. They published in, in quality whitetails on his research and, you know, looking at, um, uh, notes here, 37 different bucks on, uh, the property size was 6,400 acres in, in South Carolina. You know, it's a highly high, you know, managed, you know, wildlife area. So a lot of good, really habitat. And you start talking about individuals, right? And it's out of these 37 bucks, you know, they started seeing all these different, it didn't matter the age class. You know, you start looking at, you know, the, the two smallest home ranges were yearling bucks. They used 60 to 90 acres only. And the two largest home ranges of 754 and 640 acres were also yearling bucks, right? So it's like the, the individual is, the individual is something that really needs to be the most emphasis, but we're limited to what we can get with GPS studies. Because again, we're looking at intervals, right? If that interval is an hour, an hour interval, well, that deer can move quite a far distance in an hour. What is he doing in between those two coordinates that were transferred? Right. And that's where, you know, looking at these studies and, and researchers like, you know, Dr. Harper, who's a, who's a habitat specialist, right? That's what his, his main forte is, is what his grad student's main forte is, you know, going out there and saying, okay, what are they utilizing, right? What are they, what are they feeding on? It's this time of year. Here's what they're getting. Here's what they're doing, right? And then you can start seeing and, and taking that data, combining it with, you know, okay, these bucks are together. These does are together, right? The infamous study where, you know, the, the doe went on this long excursion outside of her home range, you know, in the earlier parts as the spring was coming in um, to go to a mineral well, 
you know, it was a, it was a, um, some type of mineral well, um, uh, coming out of the water source that was high in, in sodium. Right. So, you know, the researchers of the GPS study were like, Oh my, like, what the hell is this thing doing? Right. It's, it's just making every year this, this doe and then it's offspring, you know, are making every time we call them are, are taking this long excursion. And then they went out and found out why, you know, so it's, you look at that and you say, well, this is, this is kind of crazy, but it all comes back to combining the different research methodologies to really paint the picture that's going on. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there that that uh, is is completely theory. And uh, I'm, I I spoke to a client about this recently, and I think he appreciated my perspective on things. You know, a lot of these younger deer, these year and a half, in some cases two and a half, they may stick around for a longer period of time. When they have their dispersal, you remember that a lot of the times that could happen at a really early age or even older, even in their life cycle. And when I say that, I mean in their adolescence life life cycle. They go to these different areas and it's not, no, no one really has a true understanding of why they go where they go, right? And to your point there, there's always, you know, uh, elements to things and, and think of things in kind of like a fraternal situation. You've got individual deer that group together, these bachelor groups of different age classes. Sometimes they tend to be older, younger combination thereof, and they disperse and they go to these different areas and they investigate and they learn about these areas throughout the summer. Sometimes these deer go back to their, you know, the areas where they were birthed. They go to all different sorts of areas. And a lot of times they form relationships. And uh, those relationships I'm, I'm keen on understanding because, you know, those relationships create bonds and interest in areas. And there is learned behavior between deer. And uh, that associative learning makes them respectively, I guess, would be inclined to prefer or learn about these adjacent areas and you pick up deer. So if you build good habitat in the summer months, you're going to have these bachelor groups that, you know, are basically learning their environments and they go to these other areas. And what they do is they're addressing, and this is why I'm huge on summer food in the, on, on these properties, they're addressing the benefits of being on those properties. They look at, you know, what other deer are there. They can sense, you know, the social aspect of it, Right. They can see other deer, et cetera. And in those environments, they're learning the benefits, the goods, the bads. And what you'll find is as the deer start to disperse, they start to break up those bachelor groups. Some of these deer that had keen interest in your property in the summertime will actually relate well to your property and pull in. So what I think happens over time is some of these deer form these relationships, and they may be born in a consistent area. They, their offspring, and this is why there's similar antler characteristics, because a lot of the, the deer dispersion thing that we've been talking about, or I've just been mentioning, you know, 80%, 70% from their, you know, their, their, where they were birthed, they go back to these areas and they relate to, we'll say, the other deer in that lo- location, and they utilize their knowledge base to use these areas as resources. So you'll find similar, we'll say, brothers uh, that will utilize an area siblings etc that will utilize an area that is far from their birthing areas and it'll be very consistent so and and this is totally theory but i actually think there's some truth to that because i've seen very similar antler characteristics i've seen areas where i'm assuming that deer you know tend to disperse because of the great habitat we're providing so you know, summer food in that whole environment that we're providing for deer is meaningful all year long. Uh, that includes the winter months as well. So think of it on the flip side. So winter month studies where you're looking at these deer that, you know, utilize your property like, wow, there's great resources here. I should come back here. This is a great vacation site. 
and uh, you know, I'm, I'm humanizing this to some degree, but there is yeah. some, some truth to some of the information I'm suggesting. And, and I, I think that's been one of my, my little secrets to success is, you know, that's why I don't listen to the guys like don't plant summer food. Like that, that's absurd. That, that is, you know, that, if, that, if that, someone, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, if someone's telling you not to plant summer food, I mean, there's, there's issues with that all around. I mean, yeah. I know you want to keep it to half hour. I mean, we could spend three hours. <laughs> yeah. about that. I mean, it's, you start looking at, I mean, that's, that's one of the most, it's the second most important time I would say. And I only say preface that it's very close first only because the, the early spring early excuse me, the mid to late spring, early yeah. summer is the, the most crucial yes. in, in Primarily talking with does, lactating does, feeding their fawns, and then fawn growth. Because we all know fawns have to hit a certain weight before they, they reach sexual maturity. And the, the more food resources you have, high-quality, palatable, you know, nutritional uh, forages that are out there, those fawns are going to massively grow um, to where they need to be at a much higher uh, prevalence than they will on obviously poor areas with low food quality, you know, and it's obviously you got bucks that are, that are investing everything in antler development and body size, because as you move through the summer, right? I mean, what's the whole goal is their whole goal is to, to build body mass. They're, they're consuming protein. They're growing antlers. They're feeding themselves or feeding the fawns for the, for the next generation. And then as you start moving into the winter or the fall, excuse me, it's, it's now that, that, that shift happens that lipogenic switch to where now they've got all of the things that they needed through the summertime. Now they're not as stressed biologically to start putting on the fat reserves and things they need to get through a harsh winter, because that's really the goal, especially in our latitudes. The whole goal is to pack enough resources and have enough biological uh, currency, if you will, to really stress or to go through a stress period of like three months, I think is the golden rule, right? That they try that kind of research has kind of yeah. you know, looked yep. set. So, you know, if how, how do you expect them to do that if there's no summer food? That you can expect them to do that in the late August when you start looking at the um, the, uh, the the growth period of, of plants, right? It's like, well, the the summer forages are at the lowest nutritional density towards the end of the summer, and that that's when you want to do it, right? I mean, you got to be feeding these, you got to feed be feeding them for the four months, the spring, the the summer. I mean, that's a crucial period. I mean, especially you want to talk about fawn recruitment. Well, they drop. I mean, deer are going to drop fawns in spring. You know, and it's if there's no food, those fawns aren't going to survive. You know, and if there's no habitat, they're not going to have cover, right? I mean, it just you can go down the list on things um, that that are going to go wrong with that. I mean, you have to have summer food. You yeah. have to. Yep, absolutely. So anybody who listens to anybody that says that otherwise, we've just totally, hopefully, reshaped your mind and said, don't listen to that person. Well, and, and it's like if, uh, if someone says you don't need summer food. Okay, well, what do they do for? I'm just going to say three months. Do they not? eat you know like what like what are you gonna what are they browsing on or what are they gonna be uh, consuming well if you don't have summer food and you've got a poorly manicured you know early i'm, I'm not gonna say early sessional let, let's say you know just just grass areas with a mixture of you know non-native you know cool season perennial grasses um you know some sprinkling of native forbs here and there but you've got a, a deer density i mean i look up here our deer density is up here crazy we've got 30 40 deer per square mile oh yeah you know so it's like okay you know well what are they gonna eat they don't deer don't eat grass if deer are eating grass you got a problem 
Yeah. You know, period. So it's like you want them to, okay, yeah, they can eat, you know, shrubs and brambles. You think they're going to, you think that's going to feed 40 deer per square mile? Like, what do you, what do you think they're going to eat? What do you think the fawn, and do you think they're going to get enough food to, to feed, you know, a twin fawns or even triplet fawns? Like, I mean, okay, what about cover? You th- How do they avoid predation? How do they avoid thermal cover? You know, the really hot temperatures. How do they bed down in the shade? You know, I mean, your habitat equals food, you know, in, in cover. So it's like you just start, it just doesn't make any sense. I've heard people say that. And I'm sure I can't even in my head think of an instance on an individual level on why you wouldn't do it. I mean, everyone's like, well, they're soybeans. Okay. Well, <laughs> if you ever noticed, like, why is it that, that the entire field of soybeans is not completely nuked? Right. It's only sporadic areas, right? Yeah. Because they don't want to eat only soybeans. Right. Right, exactly. It's just like, I mean, if that's your argument, if I plant five acres of soybeans, entire five acres should be gone. But it's not. You can do an observation study and watch 10 deer on your bean field. They'll spend a certain amount of time out there, and you go out there and visit where they were. Why isn't the entire area new? So one of you the know, yeah no I, I it, think it's that, like they have the ability to to sense you know the most highly nutritional you know plants that are out there that's why we call them concentrate selectors yeah because they selectively focus on the highest concentration nutritional density for the the, the food sources that they're that they're targeting right and it's it's if you don't have the diversity I would just I mean, it, 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 it kind of drives me nuts a little bit. So no, yeah, you, you, no, you, you, I think you, I think you've nailed that. And I'm, I'm going to give one, I'm going to give one added to that point is, you know, for, for those thinking about this and I worked on just a design recently where it's, it's a large food plot and, you know, we have a big portion of beans, but what I, I call them as fungal areas. So areas that are dominated by, you know, natural brows within, and they could be shaped in circles or squares or whatever, you, whatever shape you're comfortable with where you can move, move your equipment on, around. And so you've got the planted areas that are, you know, manicured, you know, for, for row crops. And then you've got these other, again, I said fungal areas. And you'll be amazed in, in these other areas that are kind of natural brows, the, the utilization where they'll come through, they'll actually, you know, nip off, you know, some of the beans and they'll go right to these native browse areas and it's pretty interesting to think about that. And you ask yourself why it's what I call the Ponderosa diet, right? And so <laughs> they want a variety and in that variety, you're supplementing the best that you can with natural opportunities. So that's where you get smart on your plants. And the other thing, when we've talked about this is, you know, what are some natural options to emphasize interest in those areas? We talked about the utilization of sea salt, very simple option for people to throw on the ground. Uh, you can buy it pretty cheaply. We talked about that on another podcast. Foliar sprays, really inexpensive. Price, you know, per ounce is, is very simple. My food plots, that's exactly what I'm doing. Foliar sprays, strip food plots. I'm working on something new, and I'll talk about that a little bit more next year. Um, some bio-inoculation process that's going to be kind of cool. I can tell you if it works or not, you know, and I've, I've done some studying on a, f- a few things. But but the point being is diversity and, and kind of the point that Eric has brought up the whole time. Eric, last thing I want to bring up, and I know that we went over our time already. We knew we were going to fail at this, but... Hey, only nine minutes, man. We're doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The prey. So the prey piece of this. Have you considered predator-prey relationships or uh, looked at that at all in any of the studies or anything yeah. that you're familiar with? So Dr. Will Galsby is a buddy of mine. Um, I've had him on my podcast, and we talked about the, we talked about predators. You know, I think, uh, you know, and, and the, research, the research shows this. 
Um, you know, but people will cherry pick research, you know, I mean, everybody does it. It's just, it's just the way of the world. But when you talk about predators, listen, predators are a problem. Okay. There's no doubt. I mean, you can have predator issues, but what people need to understand is that, you know, especially with talking with Dr. Will and anybody's interested, you know, head over to my podcast. Me and him had a really good episode talking about this. Um, you know, but one of the things is if you've got a 10 step approach, this is, this is going to make a lot of people probably aggravated. If you have a 10 step approach, okay. For your habitat management, step 10 should be predator management, you know, and everyone's like, wait, what? The reason being is these white tailed deer, have been around for millions of years, right? They've been, they, they have evolved mechanisms to avoid predation. Are they going to get preyed upon? Yes. Okay. Does man-made actions make it easier for predators such as, you know, high urban areas, you know, poor habitat, whatever. But that's the key is that you have poor habitat, if you are on a property that has that's intensely managed, you have really good habitat. You're you're looking at your harvest data each year, and you're seeing body weights go up. You know for the deer that you're the deer that you're looking at, and everything and all those things. So you've got good, and you're having low recruitment. Well, then maybe you got to do some predator management, right? But I think a lot of people look at the predator aspect and and put way too much emphasis on it now. You know, I listen to guys like Dr. Will. I mean, that, that's what he studies is predators. I mean, and he, he he's a deer guy. You know, I mean, that's all, I mean, not all of it, but that's his big, you know, kind of passion. You know, and I, I remember his big deer stu- or predator study is how I first met him, you know, years ago at one of the uh, QDMA conferences at the time, you know, and listening to it. I mean, it's obviously something that's really fun. People like doing it. But I think it's one of those things that people spend, they invest too much of their time and resources in something that is going to have the less, that, that's going to that's gonna yield the, the least favorable results where you need to spend more time on your habitat and everything around that. Because if you do that, listen, you're going to have predatory uh, occurrences, but they're not going to be as bad as what you think. More often than not, your problem is something somewhere between steps one through nine versus step 10 with the predators. Now, that's again, we're, there's probably areas where that's not the case, but a very, very, very high majority of the time, you know, that that's that's the case. And that's what I've seen, you know, too, is people like, I got a predator problem. It's like, okay, well, you know, you need to be very, very careful when you're even doing predator management because what do you deal with with coyotes? Are you dealing with a transit coyote? Are you dealing with a, with a resident coyote? Okay, how many are you dealing with? Because coyotes have this thing called compensatory reproduction, right? You might make your problem worse if you don't know what you're doing. So are you going to go out and do a predator survey? Or are you just going to go out there and start shooting uh, shooting coyotes? <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like yeah. It's like you could be making the problem worse, and you're like, oh, my God, I got a coyote problem. Like, yeah, if you left the damn things alone, you wouldn't have a coyote problem. You know, But you killed you know 10 of them last year, and, and guess what? There's this thing, compensatory reproduction, right? So, you know, again, it's not the case at all times, but I think people just spend too much time you know, focusing on that when it's not as bad of a problem as what you, you probably think that it is. 
Yeah, and I, I think we should probably end with that because I think a lot of people kind of go to the next piece of that. I will. Yeah, a lot of, I will, a lot of people might just turn you off there, John. Yeah, I, I think so. And <laughs> and I think I think the other piece is, and if people can listen back. You know, uh, Marcus Lashley and I did a podcast, and I talked about kind of how to predator proof your properties for turkeys. I, yeah, I kind of he's got very. It. Yeah, Marcus is a great guy too. Yeah, I've had. Yeah. yeah. And those guys are just great resources, but you know, there are ways we can set up your property to eliminate movement um, or minimize movement or give more opportunities for deer and thinking about deer, you know, opportunity to escape areas, um, how they kind of transect, you know, lines of movement where predators may be more inclined to move. So it's kind of thinking through that on your property. There's some, there's some real simple things that you can do to kind of minimize those things. And you know, that, that happens to deal with, you know, minimizing road systems. And that's a yeah. big piece of the equation. So, it's create habitat. I mean, that, that you're, you giving, you're giving them what they need to do what they've evolved to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's just, that's just, that's it. I mean, people make it too complicated. It's like that, that's the mission statement. <laughs> it's like yeah. right there. There it is. Like it's two plus two is four, man. I, I no matter how much you want it to be five. It's, it's, it's four, you know, it's, you can, you can spread it one, 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 two, one, it just like, ugh. anyway, but yeah. No, good stuff, man. Eric, I appreciate having you back on, man. I'm excited yeah, no to talk again. Who knows what our next topic will be, but I think this was good. We, we talked about a whole bunch of things on this today. So I think, uh, I think it was good. Smorgasbord. Yep. I, I got to get my opinion about some things that I don't typically talk about. So I think yeah. it's, uh, I think it's all good. Awesome, man. Yeah, I had I had fun like usual, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, we'll talk again soon. See you, brother. Right. Yep. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.